Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of directors Jonathan and Josh Baker's new sci-fi thriller, Kin. Based on the Baker Brothers' 2014 short film, Bagman, the film tells the story of an ex-con named Jimmy and his adopted brother, Eli, who are forced to flee their home after Jimmy lands in trouble with the local crime boss. To complicate matters, Eli has stumbled across a high-tech gun with special powers, making them the targets of not only the thugs, but also the feds and two futuristic soldiers who want their weapon back. Kin is the Baker Brothers' feature debut. In addition to Kin and Bagman, their other credits include the short films Little Kaiju and Flight. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, the Baker Brothers spoke with director James Ponsel about filming Kin. During their conversation, the Baker Brothers discuss finding the proper tone for the film on set, the collaboration with the band Mogwai on the film's score, and why they see the film as a family drama hidden inside a sci-fi film. All right. Um, congratulations, fellas. Thanks, man. Love the film. Um, and I told you in the lobby, I really, really love your short film, Bagman, that this was based on. Thank Can you. Can you talk about sort of just the inspiration for that and then how it developed into the feature? It's just straight into it, aren't we? Straight into H- it. Half an hour. <laughs> uh, Bagman came about because we had been doing advertising, uh, directing spots for about 15 years. And we needed something longer than 30 seconds, 60 seconds, you know. So we put some time and a lot of our favors living in New York City uh, into a short film. We wrote and directed it. And it was meant to originally be a story set in the Congo and was a bit out there and we bid it out in Nigeria and South Africa and a bunch of places. And it was too expensive and probably too dangerous. And so we just said, look, we live here. Let's set it in Harlem. And that's what Bagman became. Cool. And then how did it develop into the, uh, into the feature? Uh, I guess it was about finding the right partner. And so quite quickly, we didn't actually make the short film to make a movie. Um, a lot of people do, but we didn't. We just did it, like John was saying, on the side. And then uh, I guess we said, or maybe in the post, maybe in the edit, we were like... Okay, if someone asks us tomorrow, what are we doing with the feature? So we went away, sat on a beach, came up with an idea and was like, okay, that's kind of what we want to mess around with. We want to tell a story about brothers, which should not be a surprise to anyone. Uh, and then Josh means that we're twins. That's, and, and then people started asking and, and luckily we had it already set aside and we could pitch it out really quickly. And so it was about finding partners and we found 21 Laps, uh, Dan Cohen and Sean Levy who own 21 Laps and they make everything from The Spectacular Now all the way to Night at Museum and everything in between and at the time they were working on two projects that we were not really aware of. One was Arrival and one was Stranger Things Um, and they were all coming up at the same time as we were developing this thing and they talked about grounded sci-fi a lot and we talk about grounded sci-fi a lot so they felt right. 
Cool. And so you guys, you, you wrote the short and then you worked with Dan Casey, who's a great screenwriter on yeah. the feature. Can you talk sort of about the process of collaborating with him? Yeah, we, we tend to think of ourselves as story guys and we come up with little nuggets of ideas together and that's one of our strengths, uh, working together and just developing an idea fairly quickly and putting it on the back burner or finding a home for it later or, or whatever it ends up being. And so for this... Dan was someone that we interviewed early on with a bunch of other writers and we didn't want to see anyone that did sci-fi work or we certainly didn't want to read it. Anyway. Yeah, don't send us the sci-fi stuff. Just send us the crime drama, the family drama. That's what we're into. And so we found uh, Dan. We vibed with him straight away and we pitched him the whole film in sort of two-hour meeting uh, on, on set of a commercial and he said halfway through, like, you know, I'm from Detroit. I grew up there my whole life. You know, I've got a very sort of personal stake. We, we were like, yeah, hired no, immediately. <laughs> no one told us that. Uh, yeah, yeah, you've got the job. So he, he really brought a lot of his childhood to the beginning of the film, things like that, you know, little journeys that he rode his bike through and, and, and stuff and took us on a great trip to Detroit where we, we took a lot of photos and soaked it all in. Cool. Um, can you talk sort of about, I mean, the film is such a, it's a balancing act of tone. You know, so much of it, it's a, it's a family drama. It is a relationship story. It's about yeah. parents and children and siblings. And then it also has this, you know, elevated sci-fi element. Can you talk sort of about uh, finding a balance for the tone and then sort of what it was like on set, whether you're working on a, uh, you know, a scene with a, a younger actor and Dennis Quaid versus yeah. these scenes where things are exploding? Well, it's, firstly, it's a, it's a, in many ways it's a frustrating movie because it is multiple things and uh, some people either really get that and some people just can't sort of get their heads around how they all work in the one sort of story but for us a lot of those elements are very personal and they're our taste in cinema and things that we've always wanted to sort of dive into. It really came from that of just what are we like up on the big screen and you know, we like smaller indie fare and we like bigger sci-fi genre stuff. And there's a few films that combine those things, but not many. And we were like, well, that's what we want to make. We, we want something that's both of those things together. And I really still don't see why you can't have uh, big sci-fi ideas mixed with uh, character intimacy and focusing on other things. So we talked a lot about the percentages of how much is sci-fi versus how much is you know family drama, and, and especially about if you take the sci-fi elements out of this movie, then we need characters that stand up and relationships that we're invested in, and a movie that still works if it was a bag of diamonds or his dad's pistol or whatever it ends up being, and in that bag that he takes on the road. And so we never wanted the visual effects and the sci-fi components to sort of take over the film. And we never wanted to lean into spectacle more than sort of sophistication. Were there films <clears throat> when you were initially conceiving the idea or sort of when you were um, sort of developing it as a feature, were there films that were reference points for you that tonally did things that you really admired? Yeah, for sure. Uh, a lot of them were not sci-fi things. Um, I mean, let's start there. The, the 80s stuff that we grew up with definitely has a place. I mean, people point to Terminator a lot. We're big Terminator 2 fans, not so much Terminator 1 fans, but the whole thing, yes, there's a lot of uh, similarities. That's because we weirdly saw Terminator 2 first, of course. I think. <laughs> of course. We were at the age when Terminator 2 drops, and then we're focusing on that one, and then we had to go back and watch the other. But we were born in the late 70s, and so a lot of sort of early 80s stuff and mid-80s stuff, things like um, 
The Last Starfighter or uh, Flight of the Navigator or Explorers, uh, Stand By Me, right? Um, things like that. And then when it comes to the other things, the things that maybe were a little bit more of a touchstone for the film were movies like Mud, um, movies like Stand By Me, <laughs> things that have a journey aspect, uh, kid protagonist, um, that type of thing. Basically kids that are in an adult film. And there, there was one in the 90s uh, that was really special to us, um, A Perfect World with Kevin Costner. Not a huge film, but something that we still watch to this day and, and love, uh, the relationship between a criminal that basically takes a kid hostage on the road and becomes sort of best mates with him. Can you talk about, I'm so curious, I mean, growing up in Australia, but seeing all these American films and sort of capturing your imagination, can you talk about sort of how you think that formed sort of your unique voices as filmmakers? Uh, or are there also sort of a whole yeah. other body of Australian films that were equally... Yeah, there is as well. Um, I don't know how many of them really relate to the movie you just saw. <laughs> um, yeah, I think this movie's about an outsider. I mean, we're not the only ones that are attracted to outsider stories. I think they're very interesting. And I think as an Australian living in a foreign country, there is a feeling of that a little bit of, you know, where do I belong? I've been here longer than I've been uh, in Sydney, for example, and that's where I would say is my home. But I've been here longer, so this is kind of my home. And it, it puts a whole floating aspect onto, you know, you as an individual. I, th I think there's also things that you see and you pick up about culturally and socially in this country as a guest. Uh, things that we feel as Australians are a little silly that we're still talking about it. Things like uh, why can't a young black lead be in his own movie? Uh, that's not sort of gang related or you know something else uh, with things about gun debate and visuals like that and so there are some of those things that we've sort of injected into this film to you know let's look at it slightly differently and start a conversation can you you touched on it a little bit can you talk this you have a remarkable cast can you talk sort of about the casting process and sort of how how, how you put them all together I think, I think we always knew that the lead was going to be an, a first-timer. And this is his first feature film. Um, he was in a TV show, uh, The New Edition Story, but that hadn't come out yet when we cast him, so we had to trust that he knew what he was doing. He just had a great uh, self-tape, honestly, yeah. on his phone, and he was really, really subtle and had the confidence to play it down when every other kid was kind of like playing it up for a director. Completely. And he was awesome. And then for the other cast members, uh, Dennis is someone that we really wanted, someone that had a personal connection to the audience. Someone, I mean, we grew up with Dennis, everything from breaking away to frequency to, you know, stuff that he's doing yesterday. Uh, and I think when you put a bullet in his chest, you really want the audience to feel like that's a big deal. And uh, it, it is to us, so I'm hoping it is for an audience. Do people listen to these podcasts not having seen the movie? It's questionable. Um, Spoiler alert. Yes, my bad. Uh, but, but that's that's why Dennis was there. I think I think the personal connection is key there with the audience. Uh, who else we got? Uh, Zoe Kravitz was uh, first choice for us. We're blessed we got her. Um, James Franco. We've always been attracted to roles he plays that are sort of teetering that line of terrifying and and kind of charismatic and almost humorous 
a lot of these screenings, people don't know whether to fully laugh and embrace it or sort of like pull back a little bit. So that we really enjoy that tone and, and seeing sort of the odd giggle and then other people with wide totally. eyes. Totally. And then Jack Rayner is Irish indie film and we were fans. Uh, he had Sing Street coming out around the time we were casting him, um, which we really like. And then movies like Glassland that he did with uh, Tony Collette um, and what Richard did, Lenny Abramson film. So we were big fans of Jack Rayner's and we wanted someone that you might know but you aren't like, oh yeah, I know that guy, I've seen 20 of his films and I think he played into it well for us. Yeah, even, I'll go with another spoiler alert, but um, yeah, I mean, there's so many things I love about the film but you have two um, just remarkable hard right turns in your first act when, yeah, Dennis Quaid, who we have such a deep relationship with as filmgoers is... Yeah murdered in front of our eyes and then in the final act when Michael B. Jordan um, is revealed. Can you talk about uh, just uh, developing those story points and then also about Michael B. Jordan and how you yeah. how you kept that under wraps and yeah, how that for sure. I mean it's a secret we've been keeping for two years now so it's 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 hard because this industry doesn't like to keep a secret but it's it's one of those difficult things where if you put him on the poster, people are going to feel very disappointed that he's in seven minutes of the film. And so that doesn't make any kind of sense from our side. So we're saying our argument was you're turning your biggest asset of the film into your biggest weakness because if people go in knowing that Michael's in this film and it's the last five minutes, yeah, like Josh said... Expectation you, will kill you. You're walking out pissed off. Right. Whereas if you have no idea and then the mask chuk, 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 comes up and it's Michael B. Jordan. There's a lot of people out there that are losing their minds and being, for instance, in a screening in Atlanta, there was 300 squeals in the audience. So it is fantastic to watch, uh, you know, a certain audience really get into that. Um, but uh, Michael, yeah, Michael history, he, um, he stumbled upon the short. He was a big fan of Bagman and just reached out and was like, how can I help? He actually sent it to our writer, Dan Casey, um, who gets a video on his phone of Michael watching our short and you can see Michael's reflection in his own laptop of him <laughs> filming it. And uh, he sent it to Dan and said, oh, look, I've been a fan of this for a while. What's going on? Are you on this? Like, are you doing a movie of this? And so Dan looked at us and said, I think you got a fan in Michael B. Jordan. So we just hooked up with him immediately and it turns out he's a big genre fan, sci-fi head, uh, comic books. He's into all that stuff. And so we had a big conversation. He was like, I like what you guys are, are doing. I'm a big fan of the short film. Tell me where, tell me when, I'm, I'm down for whatever. So that was great. Cool. Um, total music nerd question I just have to ask. I'm a massive Mogwai fan. How, 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 did, yes, how? <laughs> well, uh, we are too. Mogwai came about because we put together a playlist for the movie and it crossed over from a playlist that we had for the short film. And we provided it to the writers and producers and we basically said, listen to this 18-hour playlist and that's the movie. And Mogwai ended up being a large percentage of that. And so we kept being uh, represented by WME, uh, so are Mogwai, we didn't know that at the time. But we went in with uh, Bradley Rainey over there, one of their uh, producers, and just said, look, let's get the conversation going about music we're after a band, not a composer. We want to do something slightly different. Uh, and it was a lot of like, okay, have, have you considered Sigur Ross? Have you considered this, this and that? And we liked all of them, but we kept coming back to Mogwai. Something a little bit more Mogwai, you yeah, know? It's, it's darker than some of the other choices. I look back at the list and I'm like, yeah, they wouldn't have been right. Mogwai has this 
beauty, but it also has this darkness. And there's a big duality to this film. I mean, you, you probably noticed, but there's a lot of things that are contrasting. And the music had to be the same thing. It had to have beauty and emotion and connection, but it also had to have these droning guitars and this like darkness and this like, I don't know where this going and, and attention. And Mogwai do that very well. And so we just asked and they said, they, they said, look, we get offered film projects all the time. We've never done a film. We've only done documentaries and TV, French TV, even more bougie. <laughs> um, and they said, look, we really connect to this script and we'd love to do it. So we suddenly are looking at each other like we got Mogwai, this is ridiculous. And then they sent over a bunch of demos and that was scary because you, it's a band and, and they're like busy writing music for albums and touring. And we're sitting there getting closer and closer to a final mix going, we need guys, we need like finished tracks. I mean, we had demos that we were going with, but yeah. they were all sort of synth demos, very, very basic. And we kept hearing in these friends and family screenings and stuff like, we really need the heart and the emotion to come through the music. And we, what, what can you say other than like, that's It'll coming, there, yeah. just trust us. And so so we heard a lot from the Mogwai guys of like, it comes together in the studio. And we're like, okay, yeah, wait, I hope that? it does. <laughs> and then we went to Scotland and hung out with the guys for five days and it came together in the studio. They, they really like know what they're doing and, it, and they just put some beautiful music together. And then we were very lucky that uh, on day four, they suddenly look over and say, you guys know we're releasing this as a Mogwai album, right? And we were like, no, we did not. So they, they took nine tracks out of 33 and they fleshed them out, made them three times as long, put vocals on some, like they did their own thing to our music and released an album that came out two days ago and it's really good. Yeah, you should pick up the vinyl for that. It's beautiful. It's, we pretty much somehow managed to make our favorite Mogwai album with Mogwai. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. Um, so we're at the DGA. I have a, a production question. Can you talk, I mean, this is such an ambitious first feature. Can you talk about working with your assistant director and just sort of how you created, uh, you know, a massive film that's a big road trip and just sort of scheduling it out and how you figured out the logistics of what, what I assume was... A very, you know, very ambitious with probably not as much time. As yeah, yeah it's, like. it's Absolutely. definitely ambitious. Um, first AD, Canadian, uh, also works a lot in America, uh, Andrew Robinson. He'd done a lot of second unit on some pretty gigantic films, X-Men's and things like that. Uh, a lot of the action unit stuff. Uh, so he had a really good stance on how all of that stuff comes together. Certainly we didn't. Um, and then the films that he'd firsted were a little bit more intimate, a little bit sort of more character driven. And so like the film, he became this perfect combination of the two styles that this film was straddle straddling. Um, we shot for 40, 45 days uh, in Toronto mainly, uh, about four days in Detroit, uh, about two days in Nevada, I think, day and a half something in like Nevada, that. something, just to get desert on film. But as you know, you have 47 and you need 52. It's just the way it always goes. So we were moving very quick. Um, I think we moved pretty quick, but we were moving as quick as we've ever moved before. And we had a lot of locations because it's a road trip movie. So everything's kind of different. And yeah, we. I think we were smart enough to buy days essentially so that we could set ourselves up with enough time but even still we were moving very very quickly but a lot of builds like more than you'd think uh we built the casino we built 
for, be, only because Ontario doesn't allow you to shoot in casinos and we didn't know that until we were rolling in a van. Uh, and so we were like, how the hell are we doing the whole ending? Um, and so we ended up getting a gigantic banquet hall and decking it out with all of the slot machines in North America. And we basically made that thing. Uh, the strip club was built from scratch uh, very cheaply and, and looked great. Uh, the police station was built from scratch. And that was legit. That was me and John saying we want to have a parking lot out the front that you can pull up in. You walk into the front, then you go into the dispatch room, then you go into the bullpen, then you go into the jail cells at the back and we want it all connected. And everyone said there's no way that's happening. We will do it in two halves and put green up. And we're like, we're not, there's not a lick of green in this movie. We're not putting green screen up anywhere. So we found this, um, what was it? Like it was a, a car, dealership. car dealership that was Exterior. old and, and the ceiling was about to you know, drop in on itself. And we built the whole thing inside a car dealership and it's still there. It's kind of abandoned and, and people like roll through it on YouTube with their like with flashlights out. This looks like a film set. It is. Is that the layout of the police station in Terminator 1? Your yeah, favorite sure, Terminator sure, film? Yeah. sure, pretty much. Yeah, something, yeah, something like that. Well, I think we were halfway through the writing with Dan Casey and he, we originally had it uh, ending in a, a amusement park, abandoned amusement park or something like that. And he came up with this idea of it makes a lot more real world uh, problems for these guys if they're basically arrested at the end of the film and then we can have our final scene play out there. We, we love that image of starting in a, high, in a school hallway with him sort of sitting with his back towards the wall in a certain type of trouble yeah. and ending the film with his back against the pylon in a, in a police station, you know, in a completely different kind of trouble. Of like, and, how did we get here? Yeah, just seeing sort of how that young character gets there. And then uh, that's where you assume the ending of the movie is and then we, we go into dimensional on you. Which, which I guess is structured the same as the short film. It's, you know, we wanted 80% uh, of something that you think you know what you're getting and it's going, okay, we're going through these and then we get to something at the end and th flip it on its head and try to do something that you didn't see coming. And I think that worked really successfully in the short and hopefully the structure played out the same way here. Can you, I, you said, you know, obviously you would have liked to have had more days, but it was still more days than you had. Than like many, on, yeah. Yeah, on shorts. And Absolutely. Music, like what physically compared to like shorts and commercials that you'd had, like what, what did it feel like to shoot for 40 odd days? I mean, uh, the, the biggest we'd ever shot in a commercial was 19 days. It was about and five and a half. A, and that was a beast and doesn't happen very often. It was about five and a half million for a commercial that died. Yeah, uh, that's silly. But most of the time it's, you know, not above 10. Like that would be a big shoot. So I think for us it felt like, okay, now this is a marathon. This is like we really have to eat properly, take care of ourselves, sleep well, you know, just like mentally be there. That, that was different and unique for us. You know, we've never had to sort of deal with that before. Yeah, for sure. I know you guys are probably asked the, the question all the time, but I'm curious just in the context of this, are you on, being a collaborators like this on days when one of you is just more physically exhausted, are you, are you able to sort of tag out? Are you always sort of completely, how do you divide, how no, do you divide well, tasks well, there's, two, on there's two reasons for the answer being no to that. <laughs> so the, the first one is we're twins. Yeah. So. We're very competitive. I mean, at the end of the day, he was directing before we got together. I was directing separately before we got together. We got together in 2007. Now that we're together, we're, it's kind of 
one voice. You, you, you basically do everything as much as possible, standing right next to the actor, all having a three-way conversation. When you're approving props, we're, we're both there doing the same thing. I think we get things done twice as fast at times because we're fairly quick with decisions. We've got the same taste, which helps very much. I've heard a lot of duos that get things done uh, twice as slow. Uh -huh. uh, we're definitely not those guys. I, I, th would say. I think just naturally growing up together, having the same sort of life experience, school together, you know, military together, bunch of things together. You just you you have this same sort of feeling on everything and when you have have the opportunity to make your first movie obviously you like the same films growing up and all of that kind of thing so it just works it works for us i think the best thing we have is brainstorming Be, being able to take an idea and mature it very quickly because you can bounce it off each other and then make a decision and then do it and i think as a solo director, I wouldn't know that much about that, but as a solo director, I'm sure that works just as fast for them too. But being able to better an idea and, and come up with something that from a slightly different perspective and then let best idea win, that's kind of how we come at things. I feel like so much of collaboration with your key department heads, et cetera, is sort of, or in life, is, is being able to argue or disagree well. <laughs> do, you, do you guys disagree? It sounds like you disagree in a healthy Yeah, but I think what way. helps is that if you and the editor are having issues and you, you have completely different sort of opinions on something, that becomes a, you know, ego in it or out it, it's still sort of a head-to-head -head situation, right? Who's gonna win that? You're gonna win that because you're the director. But in our case, we enjoy the three-way sort of triangle dynamic, which is us and a production designer, us and an editor, us and a DP, us and a whatever. And often, not all the time, but often it'll be something like the DP and one of us will go, no, you know what, I think this is the right way of going. And then the other one goes, okay, I trust you guys, let's do it. And so there's kind of a give and take to that as well. Can you talk about sort of um, your, your cinematographer Larkin Seipel shot some films that I love like Cop Car and Swiss Army Man. He shot the yeah. um, This Is America music video this year. Um, right. Can you talk about sort of how you came to collaborate and what that was like? So... Uh, he probably doesn't want me to say this, but he hit us up on Vimeo uh, nine years ago or something now and just said, like, we should go out and have lunch. And we love that, especially with, like, younger guys. Uh, he's a little bit younger than we are. And so we connected really quickly and we did a commercial really quickly and then suddenly that turned into five commercials and then we went to Russia and did a Nike ad with him and once you are in Moscow together, that it's like you're bonded. And so, yeah, he just became a go-to guy for us and we like to spread it around a little bit when it comes to cinematographers. We're not just the, we've got one guy only. We, we kind of like the, the difference that that can give. And when it came to this movie, it became very apparent very quickly that Larkin would be right for this. He has a grittiness to his sensibility that is perfect for this film. But he also knows how to play with toys. He knows how to get slicker material. And I think that shows in all the work you just mentioned. Uh, Swiss Army Man especially has a real heart and is really beautiful, but it's also got this kind of handmade quality to it, which is great. And we wanted similar things for this. And the way he treats an image as well, he genuinely cares about having something that feels classic. And, you know, just like us, we wanted to contrast a lot of those high-tech visuals with something that is very grainy and gritty and feels like it was shot on film, even though we shot uh, Alexa Minis pretty much. 
And and he talked about beating up the image a lot, um, as did Alex uh, Bickle, our, our colorist. Uh, both of them were on exactly the same page as us. Let's take all the slickery away. Let's take all the glossiness that you would expect from a movie that has these type of concepts in it. Let's throw all that shit away. You don't need that. And we agreed. That's that's kind of the indie aesthetic that we wanted to approach the film with. So we shot almost exclusively um, 1600 uh, ISO on the Alexa, which obviously has a, a built-in sort of grain structure to it, but then added a really nice sort of uh, structure with, with uh, Alex on top. And so everything, even some of the cleaner things, we, we grid it up a bit. And what's your process like? Do you guys storyboard? Do you, or? Uh, only, well, look, this is the first time for us. I mean, on commercials, yes, everything. Uh, you're kind of forced to, and whether you want to or not. And often we don't want to because you, we want it a bit freer when we get on set. For this, uh, we asked a lot of questions to a lot of people of like, how do you guys do it when it comes to storyboards? That was one thing that I was really wondering about. And we, we basically came down to storyboard the action sequences, uh, storyboard the complicated ones, let everything else be a little free, but have a shot list and, and an idea of going in. And occasionally you, you would step onto set and be like, what are we doing? And me, We'd John and Larkin yeah. would figure it out. Yeah. Can you, um, during the process, can you sort of talk about what was sort of the most challenging moment for you and then what, what you're most, um, conversely, what you're most proud of in the film? Yeah, great question, man. Um, well, firstly, we shot in Toronto in the winter, so that is challenging. Um, it mainly was the coldest, nights. Mainly nights yeah, as well. Yeah, it was the coldest I've ever felt. And in that police station at the end, the windows are blown out and it's snowing outside and suddenly it's snowing inside and you're like, oh man, how did we get here? But so then, that was tough. But then, see, we, we took a lot of the snow that we were getting in the frame and when the ice portal opened, we actually used it. So there were a lot of things that, as you know, they, you're pulling your hair out on set and then you end up embracing and it makes your film better. Totally. So I guess that's one thing when your actors can't even blink because it's so damn cold and you're like, it shouldn't be. It feels normal right now, but, but no, nope, it was really cold. So that was one thing. Uh, something we're really proud of. Um, a lot of the quiet moments, honestly. Like we, we look at things like the the little bathroom scene in in uh, with the kid just playing with the the weapon and discovering it. And there's a quietness to that, and there's a contrasting image in in techie sort of you know sci-fi video game metal with just an innocent kid, in the most tank. innocent kid yeah. Uh, yeah. in a tank top. Yeah, that that for many reasons sort of was the movie for us and it was one of those images that we really pushed from early on and yeah i mean we pitched this thing early on as as a family drama hidden inside a sci-fi film and i think that scene is one that we go yep that's that's that that's what that is it's mud meets district nine in in one scene did you work differently with you know Miles, who, as you said, it's his first feature, versus say Dennis Quaid or James Franco? Yeah, very early on, we we talked a lot together about just putting on different hats when you're speaking to different actors. And Miles became, you know, again, first film, incredible performance for his first film. But we actually, you could see us teaching him how to be subtle and constantly saying less is more, bring it down. And you know, you're playing a lot on set and you're embracing his playfulness but then sort of pushing him to be serious in, in moments where he needs to really switch it up. He, he was very 
insular and and internal in his uh, audition. But you realize once he was free and he's on set and he's friends with everyone and Dennis Quaid's his boy and like all of that is very playful. And so he had this innate ability to, well, firstly, he was doing this for every single like clapperboard, like every single one in the movie. So he's, he's a very playful kid. <laughs> he'd, be in a, he'd be in a like a damn near crying scene and clapperboard would come in and be like, and then like down into his like which which is magical to watch because the kid just could slip into the emotional stuff really easily and some other actors just aren't that way uh which so it was it was really cool to see the innocence of that but then contrasting that with talking to franco or talking to dennis quaid or something it for us this is a first for us as well. So, you know, you're learning that as you're, as you're going into it, you're keeping the confidence, you're keeping the, uh, the energy. And I think everyone really sort of connected to the enthusiasm we had for the material and for the voice of the film. And the reason we were able to get the quality of actors on our first movie, including someone like a Michael B. Jordan in a five minute role is because I think they all did see that it was something unique and it was something different and, a lot of people kept saying, like, I'm, I'm so happy that this isn't like every other movie. And we were the ones to tell that. So, um, Last question. I, I saw that down there. Um, so it's been over four, probably five years since you, I'm assuming, since you shot Bagman. Yeah, um, around about. Yeah. yeah and, and sort of you're at the end of a certain type of journey. Just how do you feel? Uh, that's a really interesting question to answer and it's and I don't know if I have an answer for you right now. I would say in a month if we come back to the okay. stage and we yep. talk about it then, let's, I would have a lot more perspective. Let's for go you. get a beer in a month's time. Um, we'll, we'll I feel it. I feel proud of the film. I think it's undeniably us. I like, it's very much us and people who know us and see the film are like, damn, that's that's really you guys. And I, I'm really proud of that. Uh, I can also see the scenes that are, you know stuck together with sticky tape and twine and and things that it's rough around the edges and I kind of like that quality too because it's our first film and and there's there's a you know charm to that no, we definitely took it as a learning experience and um, yeah it's not a perfect film but like there is a lot about it that we're really super proud of and so you know it's it's odd balancing that business with sort of artistic integrity and we've always being the directors that are like, I'm sorry, I, I prefer more that an audience gets an experience out of something than, you know, for instance, putting Michael B. Jordan's name all over the poster, you know. Uh, so I, th I think we're just, we're going to ride with it and uh, move on to the next. Congratulations. I'm a big fan and I can't wait to see your second and that, third man. and fourth Thanks, film. Awesome. And, appreciate um, it, man. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Honor. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll have a lot more for you in the coming weeks as award season approaches, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.